Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary. Dialogue. Welcome. These special Dialogue podcasts were recorded at the Spirit of Dialogue Conference at Utah Valley University on September 30th as part of the 50th anniversary celebration held that day. You can find more information about the conference and the celebration at Dialogue's website, www.dialoguejournal.com. In this session, past Dialogue editors Jack and Linda Newell, Bob Reese, Charlotte England, and Christine Hagland consider the Dialogue reality. We have on this panel the guides to not only take us through the past, but also to suggest what looms in the future. I want to introduce our guides. First, Bob Reese, who was editor from 1970 to 1976. Bob, nice to see you. Jack Newell and Linda Newell, who edited from 1982 to 1986. Chris Hanlon, nice to see you, Chris. 2009 to 2015. And then we have a unique perspective, which is going to be offered by Charlotte England, the wife of Eugene England, Dialogue's first editor, 1966 to 1970. Under the guidance of these three editors plus others, four editors plus others, we have seen Dialogue deliver cutting-edge work designed to promote discussion. Discussion about the key ideas, the key values, the key features of the Mormon experience. What I'd like to do in these 50-ish minutes is not have people give papers, but rather have a conversation, have a dialogue between the editors, the best guides to this organization and this journal. So I framed some questions which I've shared with everyone. Yes. Okay, I've shared, uh, framed these questions, and I'm going to ask questions, and we're just going to let the conversation go as it goes. If we have time at the end, which hopefully will, I will open it up to the audience. So the first question I posed to everyone was, I said, I assume that none of you were born with a desire to edit a journal. <laughs> How did it happen? What convinced you to take the job? And Charlotte, I wonder if I can ask you to begin our discussion on that question. Well, um, the job wasn't mine. <laughs> so I, I was... Uh, there was a lot of activity going on at that time and people in groups and across the country actually who were talking about the need of a place uh, of a place to um, share ideas and thoughts about their experience in the church. And um, and we happened we were in Palo Alto at the time, Jean was at Stanford, and um, we were talking about it with some others and and, uh, and eventually, it just, we just kind of came together with Wes Johnson and, and their little group, and, and, uh, and this happened. And uh, I, I, I was looking over the audience this morning, and I thought, 50 years ago, we were doing this, the beginning of this. And it just, it just stunned me, because I, I see people who were there 50 years ago, and I just think of the incredible commitment and dedication and the hard, hard work that it took uh, to get that off the ground. And um, I, I think, and, and the question you know, that was asked is, why would you start something like this 
Well, um, knowing Jean, I'm not surprised because we um, we had done a lot of things in, in our marriage that were just a little bit out of the ordinary, I guess. I didn't know what it was, but at the time, we just thought, well, this is what everybody does. And uh, he, I remember we, would, we had been dating for the year. I was at the University of Utah, just my finishing my freshman year, and he was in his second year. And we went down to hear the, temp, the technical choir. We thought, let's go down there and listen to them practice. That would be kind of fun. So we did. And uh, we're walking around. And now, only those of you who knew Temple Square before they put the big buildings up and everything, the old Bureau of Information, and there was the lawn there like it is now. And there was a little railing, a metal railing that went just across the lawn that went along the temple, around the temple. And, um, and she said, let's walk up in here. And I said, I don't think we can go in there, can we? And he said, no, it's all right. <laughs> and so we opened the gate, we walked in, and if, you know, this was just normal to do. And it was a Sunday morning, nobody was around. And we walked over between the temple and that little building, the Bureau, of, uh, not the Bureau of the Annex. And, um, and, and that used to be, there was a wall on the, on the east side of the temple. You know, the wall went all around the temple grounds. And, and we're standing there and just saying, what a neat, quiet place this is. The sun comes booming over the top of that hill. And you know how it is when you fall over that a wall. When you first get that sun, it kind of blinds you a little bit. And uh, he took my hand and put a ring on it. And uh, I'm <laughs> and I we 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 had been going together for a year and with others a little bit once in a while when we thought, you know, we need to kind of not be just going steady all the time. But it didn't work. So we go back together all the time and and uh, and what flashed through my mind at that time is that the guys that I dated that summer before just come, it's kind of like people when people die, you know, and they see all these people just kind of marching past. And I, I was so, I didn't expect a ring. And it wasn't like now where you go shopping for a ring and they choose what you want. But um, it, it was a lovely experience. And I should have caught on at that moment that we were headed for one heck of a ride. <laughs> and, and it was. And so when, when things happened that, that I realized that we took advantage of the opportunities when they came up. A few months after, Jean was going on a mission, and um, we didn't know whether to get married before we went. It was a decision, it was a hard one to do, and we went and talked to Elder Kimball, who was in the courtroom at the time, and after a visit with him, he was so wonderful, and he said, you know, marriage is your first mission. So I figured, we get married, Jean will go, and I finish school. So anyway, it ended up that I went to, I was called to, and uh, we went to some on mission. During that time, Jean was majoring in that. He caught, we were sent off in the village at the top of this mountain to teach school. And uh, during that time, 
he decided he didn't want to be a math major anymore, and he wanted to be a teacher. And so our whole lives just changed at that time. And um, all kinds of troubles happened because of it, but, you know, I wasn't kind of crazy. And so when the dialogue came along, it seemed like it was a natural thing to do. I didn't know how you started a magazine. I don't know. How, I mean, how do you do a journal? What did we know? And so we learned as we went. But it was taking that risk, and it was so well worth it. And I just am so grateful. As I saw all of you here this morning, it, it was just, and I just thought, you know, she would rejoice. And he would also say, this is worth every minute and every pain, every obstacle that came in the way to make this happen. Thank you. predisposed in a way to uh, end up becoming an editor of Dialogue. And I was a convert to the church in uh, 1961, and uh, one of the first things that happened uh, after that, 1963 rather, one of the first things that happened after that was that I attended a priesthood uh, session lesson, and it was told that evolution was definitely an idea of the devil. And uh, this shook me my foundation, and so I asked after the, uh, the meeting, uh, where did this idea come from? And the person who had known the lesson said, uh, well, it's from uh, Joseph Fielding Smith's book, Man, His Origin and Destiny. So I got a hold of the book and looked at it, and oh, that made matters worse. And so I wrote Joseph Fielding Smith a letter, and I said that I was a new convert to the church, and I was uh, deeply pained by the idea that I was supposed to give up my belief about how human life could be and so forth, and could he help me with that? And a few days later, I got the same letter back, scrawled across the bottom, read my book, Man, His Origin and Destiny. <laughs> so uh, I kind of took my wound after that uh, for some time. And then uh, Linda and I were married. And, uh, dialogue came into being in 1966. We read about it in uh, Time Magazine and uh, looked at each other and said, we got to sign up for this. And so we got the first issue when it arrived. And the second thing I think that predisposed me uh, to it was that uh, we were in New Hampshire. I was a young faculty member at the University of New Hampshire. And uh, Boyd K. Backer was then uh, an assistant to the Forum of 12, I think, and mission president in that area. And uh, he had given a talk about the reason that blacks were denied the priesthood in the church. And this briefed me deeply. And so I called him up and made an appointment with his secretary to drive down to Cambridge and uh, talk about this. And uh, he was uh, reasonably tolerant of my uh, questions, but basically told me at the end of our conversation, just repent and go up to New Hampshire and, and uh, mind your own business. <laughs> so it wasn't many years after that that Flint uh, and I were invited to become editors of Dialogue, by which time uh, we were at the University of Utah. And uh, I uh, had also chosen along the way that the, the emphasis in my academic field, which is the history and philosophy of universities, that academic freedom was one of my central interests. 
And uh, so uh, that seemed to fit uh, with the times because this was a period when there were very intense controversies going on uh, around scholarship of the church. That those issues were just really emerging in a serious way. And uh, so it seemed to fit that uh, we might be able to play a helpful role in editing dialogue at that point in time. Linda might want to add a word or two about her experiences. We were called. <laughs> Fred Eskelin, Randy Mackey showing up at our doorstep with suits and ties and said that they had made the, the search committee had made their decision and we'd already put them down and they said they'd made their decision and we're it and so we did the courtesy of telling them that we would think about it for a week and it was a hard week and finally uh we decided that we would do it. So it was uh, it was not anything I ever thought we would do, but it was a, it was a nice ride. <laughs> I wonder if, if Bob would be next. Yeah. Bob was editor from 1970 to 1976, and he's got a mic down there. A rather contentious time, I think, Bob. So what were you thinking? <laughs> Before I say something, I wanted to recognize uh, other people who could be up here. Uh, Wes Johnson, one of the first editors of Dialogue along with Gene. Uh, Neil and Rebecca Chandler, who were uh, editors sometime after me. Ross and Mary Kay Peterson. Why don't you guys stand up and take yeah. a bow and yeah. let us applaud you. Francis Men Love? Yes. Francis needs her own applause. I was probably the least. Shout out. Mary will be there tonight, so give her a big hug. Uh, I was probably the least likely of any of the people who edited dialogue to have been thought to be an editor. <clears throat> I was in my first year of graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, and that blue uh, first issue of dialogue came with two people sitting under a tree having a conversation. And I had hope for myself as a Latter-day Saint, and hope for my church when I opened that book and read it from cover to cover. And I thought, yes, this, there's a place for me in this church, and there's a place for me in this dialogue, the larger dialogue. So I immediately wrote to Jean and to Wes and said, I, I, I applaud you, what, you, what you're doing. And then when I uh, started teaching at UCLA a few years later, I started taking trips up to Stanford to meet with Jean and Wes and uh, Ed Geary and other people uh, and started getting involved in the journal. And then uh, Charlotte couldn't say no to Jean, I couldn't either. <laughs> So when Jean asked me to be the second editor of Dialogue, I, uh, I was very grateful for that opportunity. And this morning in one of the sessions, I talked about what this idea of Dialogue is. Hugh Nibley uh, translated John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Dialogue, and the Dialogue was with God, and the Dialogue was God. That's why I got involved.
Chris and I are much closer in age, so I would like her to turn. <laughs> yeah, um, Bob's wrong. He's actually not the least likely editor. That was me. Um, I grew up with dialogue in my house. Uh, my dad wrote an article in the one of the early years, and we had subscription. And I literally cut my teeth on dialogue. We had copies with my teeth marks in there from when I was a baby. Um, and in our family, there was a, a sort of set progression. You had to read the Book of Mormon before you were baptized. When you were eight, you were supposed to finish all the standard works by the time you were 12. And then there was a brief C.S. Lewis curriculum that you could finish. And then at 14, you could start on dialogue. And so um, imagine my surprise when I got to college and discovered that some people thought dialogue was not you know, didn't go in sequence with the scriptures. Um, <laughs> it was a shock. Um, uh, I was a um, German studies major in college, and uh, just thinking back, I actually managed to write a surprising number of papers in my um, undergraduate years about Mormon topics um, for a German studies major. It was, it was tricky. I could tell you some of the ways. But, so I was always curious, but never thought of it as, as more than just um, something to be curious about. And then um, I, uh, one day, when my three kids are very close together, and so I spent what felt like decades, although it was only really a few years, just pacing the halls of church um, during, during church time. And um, one day I was just so frustrated by this, I went home and said, you know, why am I even doing this? This is ridiculous. Why do I go to church? And then when I calmed down a little bit, I thought, well, when did we start doing this? When did we start bringing kids to church? Because it wasn't always like this. And so I got curious about the history. Um, I happened to have dated one of Claudia and Richard Bushman's sons in college, and I thought, well, if anyone would know, it would be Serge's mom. So I <laughs> emailed Serge and said, how do I get in touch with your mom? And so I asked Claudia about the history of Mormon children in church. And she said, well, I don't know, but I'm running a seminar at BYU this summer, and you should come. And I said, you know, did you miss the part where I said I had three little kids? <laughs> and she said, well, don't you have a sister or a cousin or something? Which is actually how Brigham Young had suggested children should be cared for at home during church. <laughs> so the older girls should take care of it. And I did actually have a sister who was in college and needed a summer job. And so she and I and my three kids came and lived in um, BYU student housing. Um, we caused quite a scene. And I did um, eight weeks of, of studying the history of Mormon women in the 20th century with Claudia. And uh, then went back home, didn't think I would ever have anything to do with Mormon studies again. And, but blogs started right about then. And I stumbled onto a conversation and started pitching in and soon got asked to blog to join the, the people who were starting the conversations. And so then, I guess several years later, when Dialogue was starting its new search, Claudia was on the board and knew me, and, um, and I was known a little bit from my blogging. Um, I still think it's highly, that I just was a highly unlikely candidate, but I um, survived an interview with, it, it was everyone, it was Armand and Molly and um, Claudia and Ross, and everyone in the same room, it was like, Meeting the Lares and Panades of my child, you know, my childhood gods, all in the same room, and um, I didn't cry or throw up, and I got. Leave <laughs> <laughs> that one, Chris. You hold on to that microphone. Okay. Pass the other one back down here, which is right to you. Yes. 
So each of you have left an imprint on dialogue. I was wondering if you could share your philosophy of dialogue, what you wanted dialogue to do, and how you made it do it. Bob, do you want to start? I felt that the standard was set at the beginning of the highest uh, level of intellectual and uh, creative expression. Uh, so for me, it was simply a privilege to uh, have coming in across my editor's desk uh, this wonderful array of personal voices, of testimony, of uh, poetry, of fiction, of uh, just leading scholarship. And uh, it was just, it was a wonderful thing to do. It was just wonderful. Think of the best writers in Mormonism sending you things to read and uh, that you could, uh, you could uh, have the pleasure of reading and talking with your editorial board about. And so that idea of uh, being part of a community, I think the thing that Dialogue did most of all from the beginning was to help people throughout the church realize that they weren't alone. They weren't the only ones with questions. They weren't the only ones thinking about the hard questions. They weren't the only ones trying to find some way to bring and harmonize their faith and their intellect and their creativity uh, to, uh, uh, together to, to harmonize them. So for me, it was, um, it was just, you know, it was, it was a wonderful time to do that. And when you would get, sometimes something would come across, as for me, Lester Bush's landmark article on Mormonism's Negro Doctrine, when that came a, a, across my editor's desk, I, was, I had what in literature we call the shock of recognition which is to say, this is it. This is something that uh, is so important that you have to give it your attention. And it was at a point of great controversy, as you indicated, in which uh, Mormonism was still very deep into the idea that uh, uh, blacks were cursed in the preexistence, and this was all part of God's plan, and there were all of these scriptures to back it up. And here came this wonderful piece of dispassionate uh, reasoned scholarship that totally destroyed the foundation of all of that mythology. And you know, to have the opportunity to be in a place where you receive that and you talk about it with the editorial board and you publish it and then you, you do it with, as, with that great trepidation because there were threats against, uh, in terms of membership about publishing that and there were people who clearly did not want it published but it seemed to us that it would be immoral not to have published that. Uh, fortunately, there weren't too many things that, that were at that, that crux, but it was, for me, a wonderful time, as it has been wonderful to continue reading dialogue and to see dialogue fulfill that, uh, that function. I think that someday someone will write a book, as well definitely have been doing it, but a book on the history of dialogue. Uh, that will uh, will capture not only what has been captured, but what is yet to be captured. Well, I reflect a couple of things that Bob just said. One of them is that uh, they were five and a half extremely strenuous years uh, for Linda and me, for Lamont Fielding Anderson, uh, Kevin Jones, and others who were on our team. Um, joyous years. Uh, we faced issues, uh, we read manuscripts, uh, we thought about what dialogue should be doing, and uh, 
what kind of research, what kind of scholarship, what kind of poetry, what kind of art uh, would best grace the Mormon community. And uh, it was just a heady time in many respects. Uh, it also involved a number of serious challenges. And so we became editors in 1982. Uh, 1983 is when R.T. E. Peterson, the apostle, uh, who initiated the, um, the calling in of people who wrote for Dialogue and Sunstone, questioning their faith and their loyalty, and uh, intimidating them from pursuing their scholarship and writing the kind of things that they were doing. Uh, these were issues that, that uh, pushed us uh, to try to define exactly what we believe Dialogue should be and what was important for us to be doing as the editors and as an editorial board. And our conclusion was that uh, so long as we vetted the articles that came in as precisely and perfectly as we could, so we were not publishing anything that contained unverifiable information or arguments that were specious in any way, uh, that we would not be deterred uh, from publishing uh, what we felt was the best scholarship coming out of the Mormon, uh, out of the Mormon experience. So that very year, we got a manuscript from uh, David Berger on the second anointing. Uh, the temple ceremony, which is largely secret, uh, especially then, uh, about the um, a special anointing which makes uh, certain members of the church, uh, gives them a, a sure ticket to the celestial kingdom. Uh, when I first learned about this as a convert to the church, I was absolutely stunned. David Berger looked into the origin of that uh, temple ordinance, uh, its nature, how it is uh, used, and so forth. And uh, that was a manuscript that we thought was of enormous importance in terms of eliminating the, the inner workings of the LDS culture. And uh, Boyd K. Packer, who enters the story at several different points, um, gave a talk in the general priesthood meeting right when we were considering that manuscript. He was obviously well aware that we had gotten the manuscript and were considering it. And uh, said, in effect, uh, those who would uh, write about sacred things in the LDS Church do anything that would embarrass the LDS Church uh, to never expect again to walk in the Holy Temple with their muddy boots. And uh, that seemed to us to be uh, throwing down the gauntlet. That is, uh, would we uh, be deterred by that threat, uh, or would we um, go back and vet that manuscript yet another time to make sure that there was nothing in there that was unverifiable? And then we made the decision after a, a long and very sweaty night in our living room with the entire editorial team. Uh, we didn't want to go ahead until we knew that everybody on the team was satisfied with it. It was a kind of a Quaker consensus ethic that we tried to practice. And in the end, um, tearfully, um, after midnight, everybody on our team said, yes, it's important that we publish this manuscript. And we went ahead and did it. So that was a defining moment for us, and I think for dialogue, uh, whether or not the independence of the journal, in fact, was assured. And with it, a very grave responsibility um, for assuring that the scholarship and the other expressions of uh, high thought and dialogue um, were the best that they could be, and uh, not in any way mockery. Um, so I. I guess uh, Germans call this the grace of late birth, coming onto the scene after all the hard stuff is done. Um, I started just after the internet had sort of blown everything up, and I think um, the, uh, 
we had sort of lived through the um, the September 6th and sort of the the end point of the tensions over Mormon scholarship and we've gotten several years beyond and, and things had settled and so when I arrived uh, there was a new generation of scholars um, coming up who, who had grown up unafraid. They didn't, I was in graduate school when the September 6th were excommunicated in 1993 and um, many of these kids were in kindergarten and um, so they, they, they didn't know and they were not afraid um, and so I decided to not be afraid, and um, and there really was never any reason to be afraid. For me, the challenges were different. Um, one, as Bob mentioned, um, dialogue had served this community-building function that was critically important in its early years, and the internet had made that had had moved that community. For for many people, they were finding they didn't have to wait for a quarterly letter from their friends and the mailbox, you could go online and have that conversation every night um, on, on Mormon blogs. And so we needed to, to think differently about what we were providing to the Mormon intellectual community. And then we needed to move the dialogue into new territory. I think for many years, there was a way in which Mormon scholarship lined up on a continuum between, um, I don't know what you call this side, independent, critical, and faithful. And, and it just kind of, people thought of themselves as somewhere along this line. And, and by 2005, 2010, um, that line had, it was an array, it was a spectrum. There were all kinds of different um, ways to have this conversation. So instead of, for instance, talking about um, 19th century American parallels in the Book of Mormon compared to Middle Eastern, ancient, um, ancient Near Eastern parallels, we could talk about how the philosophy of Rene Girard uh, helps us read the Book of Mormon in a new way. Um, we, we didn't have to line ourselves up on that continuum anymore. And so, so my, what I wanted to do was to take all of this good work that had been done and move the conversation into new areas and move the dialogue forward. Um, so I think, for instance, the article um, Taylor Petrie's article on post-heterosexual Mormon theology was, was a moment where rather than talking about the political or pastoral implications of homosexuality for the community, we moved that conversation into theological territory where it really hadn't happened before and, and needs to happen more. Um, so I feel like that was a successful um, way of moving the conversation forward. One conversation that I wish I could have moved forward and didn't find a way to was, was about women in the church. Um, as um, people pointed out this morning, it's still frustrating. We're still asking the same questions and trying to figure out the same <coughs> things and banging our heads against the same walls sometimes. And, um, and I didn't, and still don't know how to, how to change that conversation. But I do think that dialogue is, is the place where where those, those conversations can move forward and move into new ground, new and productive territory. Well, um, my, I just remember when, after the issue came out and we were in the Bay Area and people were inviting Jean around to speak to different groups. So we gather in homes or in, you know, not in churches, but always someplace that a whole bunch of people could be, but not connected to the church. And uh, it was always interesting because he would start, at, I mean, it was a mix of audience. There were some people who had never heard of dialogue, 
had just heard about it, and people who were suspicious of the founders of it and those who would be involved in it and those who were really very excited to have it. They were the usually ones who organized it. And as Jean would start speaking, <clears throat> um, and about, about a fourth of the way, a third of the way through the talk, I could see people kind of restless. I'd be kind of sitting over someplace so I could observe them, and, and uh, I could tell they were just kind of getting, oh boy, I don't know about this, you know, and, and uh, wondering what this guy is going to be, be like. And, and, uh, and I just wanted to stand up and, and just say, look, everybody just relax. It's going to get better, and you're going to love him at the end. And uh, it was just like this, how much the people would change from what they first came into, into the room with. And, and, and they would say that. They said, you know, I thought you were some kind of beast that, uh, you know, we, we just didn't know what to expect. And so it was, it was heartwarming to see the change of heart in the people. And I thought that's what the dialogue is all about. And uh, it is to bring, it isn't to convert each other to your ways, but it's to hear each other. And, uh, and, and that makes all the difference uh, for, the, for the people, so it takes away that threat. You know, I'm detecting a kind of a, a trend or a, uh, a topic of, of controversy and conflict and tension. And I'm wondering how you negotiate the dance dialogue and powers that be. And I'm wondering how that has changed over time. So, Jack, I wonder if you can start us with that question, answering that question. Well, um, I guess it seemed to us uh, from the beginning that there were uh, definitely those in the uh, among the Quorum of the Twelve and the Presidency of the Church uh, who were very critical and were left to have seen dialogue killed and probably still would, the same with some stuff. Uh, but there were also others, I think, who were uh, with a sort of wink, uh, not, well, <clears throat> trying to express the fact that they were rather admir uh, rather admiring of what Dialogue and Sunstone were doing. And uh, these were, I think, encouraging and important voices. And uh, one example that, that is of particular interest uh, a second issue, which was kind of a rite of passage for us after the David Berger manuscript, was when we had Michael Quinn's manuscript on polygamy uh, as officially practiced after the manifesto. And uh, this was practiced primarily in secret uh, by those who were the, the uh, higher up in the church. And uh, it was denied generally, historically, and Michael Quinn was interested in this as a faculty member at BYU at the time and uh, did one of his remarkably exhaustive investigations, historical research on this, and published, well, they brought to us the manuscript, which we eventually published. But uh, right in the middle of this, and uh, we would get messages, by the way, kind of back through the back door that the authorities were aware that we were considering publishing a manuscript like this, and that we better not do it, but uh, the source was never identified, and we were never quite sure, by the way, how people in the Quorum of the Twelve knew what manuscripts we were considering. <laughs> that was always a matter of some interest. But uh, to the point of this story, the University of Utah was unveiling yet another Tanner Fountain. Um, 
and uh, there was a gathering, town gown gathering of people from the university and uh, church and civic leaders, and we're all milling around there, and this whole thing about Michael Quinn manuscript was uh, still, we were in the process of publishing it, and uh, we bumped into Gordon B. Hinckley, who was then a member of the First Presidency, but not yet the president of the LDS Church. And uh, he recognized Linda and me, and when we kind of bumped into each other as you're milling around, and uh, after a short, very uh, upbeat conversation, he said, um, as we were parting, thank you for all the good you do, looking at the two of us, and then the milling around took them another way, and Linda and I went this way, and uh, Linda said to me, well, clearly he doesn't understand who we are. <laughs> Two days later, there was an envelope in our mailbox from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints administration building. We ripped it open, and uh, there was a very short letter from Gordon B. Hinckley saying, uh, it was so nice to see you with the dedication of the Tanner Fountain. And once again, I say, thank you for all the good you do. Uh, those words are enormously important, and uh, they were among the, the sweet things, the many sweet things that occurred to us during our time. So negotiating the difference uh, or the conflicts was always a selective matter because there were those who were always critical and would love to have shut us down, but there were also people who, I think, uh, believed in the importance of what we were doing. And I think they gave us perhaps some additional courage. I want to just, just make a couple of comments. During our five years, um, not only the things that Jack has already mentioned happened, but Mark Hoffman happened. And, uh, and he, the bomb that, he, that went off accidentally in his car was two blocks away, or three blocks away from the, the dialogue office and the fire station was right next door. And uh, just before the fire uh, sirens went on, I got a call from Kurt Bench who said, there's another bomb, it's just through the block. He worked at Deseret Book downtown. He said, I'm going to go over and uh, see what's going on, and I'll, I'll call you when I get back. <clears throat> and then the sirens went on. So, I mean, we were physically in the middle of all this stuff, too. And it was very scary for, uh, for people who were doing Mormon history. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the other thing that happened was that um, uh, my book came out, the Mind and Bell's book, Mormon Enigma, came out, and uh, came out on October 4th, and then in June uh, is when the church banned us from speaking in any uh, church setting on anything having to do with church history, uh, any building. <coughs> in the church or anything. Said, so I could talk on something, anything I don't know anything about. <laughs> State president said, yeah, it looks that way. But, um, <laughs> so that, that happened too, and then President Kimball also died in all of that. And so when you've got all those kinds of things, the press, Jack and I fielded so many calls from the press. They, you know, these reporters, they get little files, and, and they stick 
articles in them, and so when something about Mormons happened, they they pick it up, and uh, and the Los Angeles Times was the one who wrote the story about the church coming down on Val and me uh, for our book, and so we were in a lot of those files too. So that took up a huge amount of our time uh, with with all of that, and so there were and then with. With Mark Hoffman, that's when the church really started to really clamp down. Uh, he had embarrassed them so badly. And I think that, uh, and I really believe, and I don't have anything to base this on, so you can take it as that, but I think that part of what happened with Val and me was that they really, the church didn't really dare do anything overtly about dialogue, but if they could discredit me, then that might uh, cause people, uh, they didn't dare go after Jack, he was too well known at the, at the university and, and had too many uh, allies up there. But, uh, but again, you know, I was the woman. And uh, I, think that, I think that that had something to do with the decision that they made to, uh, to ban us. So. One of the nice things we did is we're it was under our watch that we started um, uh, featuring woman artists on the cover. And I love that. I, I could hardly wait every time the new, uh, a new journal came out. It was just so exciting to see those beautiful covers. Bob, you grab that watch, so you go ahead. Oh, oh. yeah. Bob. Bob. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I see that our time is up. I'd just like to say that one of the great things about a Jubilee celebration, as Bob knows from uh, his uh, uh, Jewish tradition, is that it's not simply a year of celebration, but it's a year of forgiveness. It's a year of renewal. It is a time in which you look back, but you also look forward. I think there, one of the things if you're an editor of Dialogue, you're in touch with a lot of hurt in our community, a lot of pain, a lot of tension, a lot of sorrow. Uh, a lot of sometimes craziness. And I would just like to say that from my point of view, one of the things I think dialogue has fostered is that spirit of forgiveness, that spirit of renewal, that spirit of excitement about who we are as a people. And I hope that as we celebrate this 50th year, that each of us in our hearts might think about not only the celebration of 50 years of accomplishment, which we will wait for future historians to truly evaluate, which I think it would be profound. But within the scope of our own dialogues, within the scope of our own families and our own marriages and our own congregations, communities, that we keep in mind that spirit of forgiveness and renewal. Well, a couple of personal things that happened that really that was a surprise to me. Um, we got a rumor that came back to us that after Dialogue was out and uh, that we had, uh, that our children had left the church. Of course, there were six of them and they were under 10. And that she and I had started our own church. And, uh, and I was so offended by this, you know, I just thought, how can people say things like that when they don't even, haven't met them, didn't know anything? So I had to learn to, you know, kind of get tough-skinned about some of those things. Um, it became personal um, and affecting Jean's work when uh, things like 
uh, a young man who was one of the students uh, in, at the institute wanted to be a conscientious objector. This is during the war, and uh, and Gene, he asked Gene as his pastor to write a letter, which he did. And uh, when the boy's father found out about it, he was furious. He was so angry with Gene that he says, I will see that you never get a job teaching in any of the church uh, programs and uh, or schools. And um, it was it was hard, it was hard to make you know, choices like that, and, and that was just the beginning. And so each one who has been in charge of dialogue has had experiences like this, and, and you do make those hard choices. But I, uh, but the pluses would come when uh, David Haight, who was our state president and our mayor at uh, Palo Alto, I remember one time we were talking to him out, outside of the church there, and uh, he was so encouraging, so supportive and so glad we were doing what we were doing and he says it's going to mean a lot to a lot of people he said but I'll warn you now that you're going to have some bumps in the road and and uh, you know it wasn't prophetic we'd already you know it's already started but uh, it didn't it, it wasn't anything that we decided gee we shouldn't do this anymore maybe we should close it down and and it just wasn't that way and when we visited um, Hubie Brown was a dear supporter of it and um, he was uh, he could I mean he you could joke with him about things that were happening and uh, and still just feel his wonderful support. So those are the pluses and I think it's anything you do that's worth anything in life. You these are, you, you get both and uh, and you decide what you're gonna go ahead with and uh, and just um, take the bumps along the way. I'm a southerner, so I'm telling stories instead of answering the question. Um, when I was in college, I came home one summer, and um, I was ranting to my dad about how there are no women on the stand in general conference, and they never speak, and it's terrible, and they shouldn't have just one token woman speaker, and you should have more speakers, and Dad, you're in the state presidency, can't you at least make sure that at state conference we have, um, you know, women represented, and he listened to me for a while, and... Um, let me go on, and he said, you know, Christine, I, I understand your point, and you're not wrong, but I'm really concentrating on trying to get the men in our state to quit beating their wives. Um, you know, and in, in some of the small towns in Tennessee, that was, that was a, really a thing. And um, I remembered that a lot as I was the editor of Dialogue. I think it's easy for those of us who live in, you know, live from here up and live in, in this way of thinking about Mormonism to think that this is the thing that's most important. And I've, I've felt no pressure from the church. Um, there's nothing that I didn't publish because I was worried about um, how the powers that be would um, receive it. I just figured they're, they're busy. The body of Christ is large and there's a lot to attend to. And so I'll take care of my little piece here and let the people who are in charge of the bigger picture see the bigger picture. We have just a few minutes, and I was wondering if anyone in the audience wanted to have a question or a comment. Not a single question or comment. 
your big panel is that you correctly Not yet. Not yet. That's coming. That's coming. But the panel has done incredibly well to have answered every question, every comment. So let me join us in thanking them for not only this panel, but also for the illustrious service for dialogue. Thank you. listening to the Dialogue podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.